The 1970s were an interesting time of dichotomies for America. On the one hand, while some were still trying to embrace the idealism of the 1960s, others were becoming discontent with political and social changes that were taking place here and around the world. The specter of communism, expressed at the time through the Vietnam War, was still very much a part of American life. While conflicts with the Soviets remained cold, close attention was paid to research the Soviets were conducting at the time for fear that technology could be weaponized by them to gain an upper hand in any potential conflict. It was during the 1970s that the Central Intelligence Agency received information from foreign spies that the Soviets were conducting experiments into certain forms of psychic phenomena. In particular, one concept seemed to capture the imagination of the CIA the most. That is the ability for some trained individuals to use esoteric techniques to leave their physical body and travel to other places in the world in order to spy on our enemies. The theory was that research could be done into things like telekinesis and psychoenergenics in order for spies to bring back credible intelligence about enemies without ever physically leaving the room. Encouraged by the New Age movement beginning in the 1960s, the US government spent a total of $20 million researching and training spies to conduct missions whereby their consciousness would leave the physical body, travel to a site where the enemy was active, spy on them, and bring back useful intelligence to government officials. At the time, an accuracy rate of 65% was considered successful, and there were claims later on in the project that this number was often exceeded by agents practicing remote viewing protocols. The training for this ability was called the Gateway Process and developed by radio broadcasting executive Bob Monroe at his Monroe Institute, which also employed a number of other professionals including psychologists, chemists, physicians, engineers, and teachers. The technique theorized that if the different hemispheres of the brain could be synchronized, conscious attention could be focused to such an extent that the practitioner would be able to transcend the human body. This process was recorded as a series of lessons to teach government agents how to enter higher dimensions of time and space where they could interact with other forms of consciousness and travel out into the universe, greatly exceeding anything physically achievable. In the end, it was determined that agents trained in this protocol were able to yield no valuable military information. This episode is on Project Stargate. and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So David, yeah, this episode is kind of far out in my opinion. Sure. So this topic was actually suggested by our listener, Taylor, and I'm really glad that it was because I had never heard of Project Stargate or the Gateway Experience before. 
I had never heard it called that. I, I have heard of remote viewing in the past. Yeah, it kind of blew my mind. You know, the fact that the U.S. government spent over $20 million to explore ways to utilize paranormal techniques for national security reasons is pretty wild. I think that during that time, they were kind of throwing everything but the kitchen sink at it, you know what I mean? Just to see what stuck. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. In doing research for this episode, I came across some other kind of kooky secret operations that were going on during the same time period. Now, we've talked quite a bit about the MKUltra experiments in previous episodes, um, which were also wild, but I would argue far more sinister than Project Stargate. Yeah, I would agree with that. In the 1960s, there was another CIA project called Acoustic Kitty, where they attempted to turn cats into spies by planting little listening devices in their ears. So needless to say, there was some pretty interesting and head-scratching stuff going on between the 1950s and 1990s. Yeah. Now, we've talked about how MKUltra was unsuccessful in developing techniques for mind control. And spoiler alert, the acoustic kitty also didn't pan out. Turns out cats kind of do their own thing and aren't well-suited to a life of espionage. (laughs) But what about Project Stargate? Even though the military eventually shut the program down, stating it produced no useful information, was there any merit to the idea of remote viewing? So um, one thing that I just wanted to mention, so you can actually still access the Gateway tapes online. And we'll have um, a link to the YouTube channel that has all of the different Gateway tapes. But David, you and I listened to the first tape. Right. And I thought it was kind of eerie and an interesting experience. I don't know. What did you think of it? I thought it was interesting. I understand it conceptually, what they're trying to do with the brain. Um, but I have a lot of objections to how they're going about doing it in, the, in this particular process that I'll get to. Okay, fair enough. Well, I can tell you that just listening to the first tape, my consciousness did not leave my body. (laughs) But to be fair, there's like a whole series of tapes, and who knows, maybe by the end, people might have that type of experience. Sure. So one very interesting article I found on Project Stargate was from the Federation of American Scientists. They said that in this particular project, as you mentioned in the intro, the government used the benchmark for determining remote viewing to be successful of about 65% accuracy. And they said that some people involved with the project claimed that in the later stages of the training program, this minimum accuracy rate was, quote, often consistently exceeded. Now, when I read this, I initially thought, well, 65% accuracy is not all that good, especially when we're talking about national security matters. Yeah, it doesn't sound that impressive at first blush. Right? But then I thought, I wonder what the accuracy rate would have been if someone was just guessing. In other words, what would be the percentage of time people would be correct by chance alone? Now, if we're talking about something where the participants have to choose one of two answers, If they're just guessing with no idea of what the correct answer is, we would expect about a 50% accuracy rate. So, for example, if the way they were testing these abilities during Project Stargate was to be something like, when you traveled to such and such a coordinate, did you see a photograph of a flower or of an automobile? If people had no remote viewing abilities whatsoever and were simply just guessing which photo was correct, we would expect them to be correct about half the time. 
Now, I couldn't find any information on how they were evaluating accuracy in these experiments, like if they were providing two choices, or if it was more open-ended, where they said, tell me what you see. And in order to determine what would be statistically better than chance, we would need to know how the experiment was being run, as well as the number of trials they were considering. But if it was that 65% accuracy was statistically better than just guessing, even just slightly, that could suggest that maybe there was something going on there. And if you're interested in how to determine chance responding in a forced choice experiment where there are two choices, it's called a binomial test and relies on the binomial distribution. So for example, if in Project Stargate, they ran 100 trials and there were exactly two choices, the probability that an individual would get the correct answer 65 or more times by guessing alone would be 0.00175. Wow. Yeah, and that shakes out to be about 0.175%. So that would be pretty unlikely to occur by chance alone. And if that was the case, that they did perform better than chance, then that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. But the article did not provide any details, as I mentioned, about how the experiment was run to determine the accuracy. So we would need to know all of that other information. The other thing that was a little bit suspect to me was that they said that this was what the quote-unquote proponents of the experiment said. So I wonder if maybe there was some confirmation bias going on or just something else going on there. Well, there's always that danger, right? Yeah, and especially when something is so shrouded in mystery. You know, they've recently declassified a lot of the documents. But it can be kind of hard to get to the meat and potatoes of what was going on with the experiment in order to really evaluate if it was run well and what the actual outcomes were. And so many of you may be familiar with this idea of the binomial distribution. And it doesn't just apply in psychology, but can apply in any other area where you're considering probabilities. So, you know, the research done on remote viewing, and I'm talking real scientific research with controls and, you know, research studies that are able to be replicated, has consistently shown no support for remote viewing actually existing. Wah, wah. (laughs) So the bad news is that we're probably not able to train ourselves to see what our loved ones are doing in faraway places or travel to different times to get the winning lottery numbers. But the good news is that psychic spies are not watching our every move. Now, maybe people are watching our every move, but it would be far more likely that they would be using technology like cell phones or GPS, not out-of-body experiences. But does that mean the government completely wasted that $20 million they spent on Project Stargate? Or did something useful come out of it? So, David, have you ever heard of binaural beats? Yeah, but only from you, I think. (laughs) So these came out of the whole hemi-sync idea. Binaural beats occur when two slightly different tones are played, one in each ear, and the brain experiences a third tone, which is an auditory illusion. So binaural beats, just FYI, you have to listen to them through headphones because it's important that each ear perceives a different noise. So what happens when we listen to these tones is that our brain waves match the tone. It's a cool thing that our brains do called the frequency-following effect. In our brains, the super-olivary complex, which is down in our brain stems, is the first part of the brain to process sound. It processes the sounds coming from each ear, 
And when these two pieces of input don't match one another, but are similar, it changes our brain waves and creates this binaural beat, or auditory illusion. This causes firing in the neurons to synchronize in a process called brain entrainment. This synchronization is also what causes brain waves, which we can measure on a device called an electroencephalogram, or an EEG. So that got real sciency for a minute, and to be fair, that was a pretty simplified explanation. But there's a theory that binaural beats can have an effect on mood, sleep patterns, ability to learn and remember new information, and pain perception. There's also something called eye dosing that uses binaural beats to induce states similar to intoxication. Wow. So what does the research say? While there have been conflicting findings over the years, more recent research published in February of 2020 in eNeuro found no significant evidence that binaural beats affect mood. But some studies have suggested that listening to these sounds can actually increase feelings of depression in some people. But what about some of those other areas I mentioned? Garcia, Argabe, Santed, and Realis conducted a meta-analysis in 2018 where they looked at 22 studies of binaural beats. And what they found was that listening to these sounds prior to and during a task helped participants to perform better than if they only listened to the beats during the task alone. Other research has found binaural beats to be effective in reducing stress and anxiety and in promoting sleep. Yet other research found that playing binaural beats to individuals undergoing surgery appeared to reduce pain and the need for strong narcotic pain medication both during and after the procedure. And yet other research suggests that listening to these beats can help improve memory and focus. I could totally use some of that. Yeah, sure. No, definitely. But are there any drawbacks? As I said, there's been some research to suggest these sounds can increase depressive feelings for some people. And although there's no clear evidence of it, many websites caution against using these beats if you have epilepsy or an irregular heartbeat. You also probably shouldn't drive or use any heavy machinery just in case you become too relaxed. I know that when we listened to the first Gateway tape, I was pretty relaxed and so not good to drive. Yeah, I would agree with that. So while these beats aren't likely to allow your consciousness to leave your body, they might help you feel more relaxed, more focused, sleepy, and possibly less painful. So yeah, so that's kind of what I had on Project Stargate. But David, I feel like this area is so much more in your wheelhouse. I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about it. (laughs) You know, it's definitely a topic that has come up in transpersonal psychology, although I have never heard it referred to as remote viewing outside of this sort of military application. Okay, so first off, I wanted uh, to talk about the release documents that you and I looked at from June 9th, 1983 that were from the Department of the Army, which is sort of what we started with when we were looking at this topic. I thought those, those were fascinating. Yeah, it was super interesting, and we'll definitely have a link to that on our discussion page because you have to kind of read through some of this stuff. Um, it was pretty dense, some of it. Yeah, I agree. I was just going to say that it's a bit hard to follow in spots as they tended to get pretty technical, but it was fascinating. So it makes perfect sense to me that the military would attempt to use what we would call in transpersonal circles a spiritual technology, Um, of course, for nefarious purposes. It also makes perfect sense to me that the military could never really get it to work. So, you know, 
for all the high-minded theorizing and all the scientific nomenclature used in the article we looked at as a starting point for this episode, I think it's funny that what they were really trying to get at is something a lot simpler. Only the military would spend millions of dollars on something that people have been doing through various cultures and spiritual traditions for millennia. But we'll get back to that in a few. For now, let's take a look at how the military approached Project Stargate. I read it had a number of different names throughout its run, but they settled on that. So a pop culture example of what we're talking about with Project Stargate might be the character Eleven from the show Stranger Things, which we, as we were kids in the 80s, right, Dr. McCono? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We became kind of obsessed with when the first two seasons came out. Would you agree? Oh, my gosh. That show is so good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. But that's essentially what the character Eleven is doing and what they're training her to do. It's right. a remote view. Right. All of these like experiments and, and stuff with her. Yeah, totally. They really did a good job of taking me back to my childhood. So one of the storylines was Eleven's character, who we think was being used as a government asset, trained to essentially do what they were trying to do in the very real Project Stargate. That is, leave her body at will, project herself to faraway places to gather useful information on a target, then bring it back for intelligence purposes. In other words, she was trained to be a spy for the military. By the way, that piece, that part about leaving the body at will, is really what separates the objective of Project Stargate from our episode on out-of-body experiences. OBEs are generally not considered something that people do deliberately, but rather an experience that happens to them. In the case of the Stargate project, the army was attempting to train soldiers to be able to consciously leave their bodies and spy on others. Yeah, so that's kind of an important distinction between those two things. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, Jessica, you and I, we also watched the George Clooney, Jeff Bridges, Ewan McGregor movie, The Men Who Stare at Goats for this episode as well, which was loosely based on the true story of Project Stargate. This is another pop culture reference to the same idea. And also a very good movie, if you guys haven't seen it. Yeah, it was. I liked it. So what jumped out at me first and foremost was how the military tried to approach this phenomenon. Of course, in order to fund anything in the government, as we well know, it has to have some kind of scientific or empirical credibility. And if you read the declassified army documents, that is exactly what they tried to do. Some military men and some scientists, I assume, got together and asked what might happen if we approach this concept from a very rational and scientific point of view. For their purposes, they termed this remote viewing. As for me, I will use the term that I became familiar with when learning about this, which was something called astral projection. Okay, yes, I've heard that term before too. Sure. That was the term that became popularized during the New Age movement in the 70s and 80s. For the purposes of this episode, just know that the terms astral projection and remote viewing are essentially the same thing. The first thing I will say about astral projection is that this is something that has been done by spiritual practitioners for thousands of years and in a multitude of cultures. There are records of this basic concept in nearly all of the world's great religions, especially as you get nearer to the more esoteric and usually contemplative spiritual core of those religions, to include a multitude of indigenous spiritual traditions as well. There are countless records and descriptions of people, spiritual practitioners, who have spent a good t amount of time in training, leaving their body at will in order to commune with something greater than themselves, sometimes spiritual entities or beings, sometimes more formless energy or wisdom, in order to bring this knowledge back to their tribe or their people. 
Some spiritual traditions have very specific steps and training that they detail in order to achieve this skill. Some use contemplative practices, some use uh, medicinal and psychoactive plants, some even use certain types of movement, invoking spiritual states through the body. There are many ways that this has been done and countless descriptions of it being done throughout history. One of my favorite descriptions of a spiritual practice used to do things like that described in Project Stargate is the portrait painted by writer Carlos Castaneda in a series of books that were big in the 1970s and 80s. Castaneda was sort of credited as the father of the New Age movement and broke into the scene with his first book, which was actually supposed to be a dissertation on medicinal plants used by Yaqui Indians in the Southwest and in Northern Mexico. What starts off as Castaneda doing research on these psychoactive plants turns into a many years tutelage under a shaman, whereby Castaneda learns how to perceive the more subtle spiritual world around him. He went on to write a whole series of books about this and, because he was such a talented writer, was able to capture the imagination of thousands and thousands of New Age spiritual seeker types. Castaneda wasn't without his controversy as well, as he was accused of abusing his female students and of making up the whole story, including inventing his teacher, a man by the name of Don Juan Matas. So there's that. We can take his stories, like everything I guess, with a grain of salt. At any rate, in his first book, Castaneda beautifully describes taking peyote for the first time under the supervision of his teacher, Don Juan. In the book, he describes flying through the air, at first by expanding his arms and legs to such an extent that he was able to bound across the vastness. So here we have an amazing description of Castaneda using an ancient spiritual technology, in this case peyote, to leave his body. Okay, he was obviously hallucinating, right? Some might say. Some might say. Well, not so fast. In the books, Castaneda always plays a skeptic to Don Juan's claims about the supernatural. If you're ever interested in reading Castaneda's books, I highly recommend them, even if you don't believe in this stuff, because the writing is amazing, the descriptions vivid and beautiful, and the characters are hilarious. So, for most of Castaneda's relationship with Don Juan, he is always trying to catch Don Juan, in other words, trip him up, with logic and reason. Castaneda continually tries to find logical reasons why he is seeing and experiencing what he is, but he can never gain the upper hand on the old Don Juan. Their interactions are really funny. In this case, Castaneda tries to get at the, quote, objective reality of the experience. To do this, he questions Don Juan about the experience to see if it actually happened. That is, he actually flew through the air, or was this just something that happened in his mind? You know, like an hallucination. But Don Juan refuses to give in to Castaneda's attempts to reduce his experience to this kind of explanation. In desperation, Castaneda finally asks Don Juan what would have happened if he were chained to extremely heavy weights that would hamper him from flying. Don Juan simply states, well, you would be flying, but with really heavy weights chained to you. That's funny. It, so it kind of makes me think of me and you. It's almost like I'm the Castaneda to your Don Juan. Okay, I like that. <laughs> That's interesting. Right, kind of. Right, so here's my point. To Don Juan, there is no separation between the worlds we perceive and what we would call reality. Perception is reality. Someone from one stage of consciousness, in a very real way, lives in a different world than someone from a different form of consciousness, and that is their reality. So why is this important? Because it alludes to the short-sightedness of how the army went about exploring this subject. 
In order to understand this, we have to look at the work of philosophers Jürgen Habermas and his validity claims and Ken Wilber and his references to the spheres of art, morals, and science. And this is also a number of other philosophers as well. You see this over and over again, this sort of concept. But for me, I like to use Ken Wilber, and he likes to call it I, we, and it. So picture a square divided into quadrants. In the top left, we have the I section. In the bottom left, we have the we section. In the top right, we have the it section. And in the bottom right, we have the its section. Okay, simple enough, right? I think I'm with you. Okay. Well, each quadrant of the whole square has its own irreducible and unique truths. The top left quadrant is all about our internal experience of being human. That is, your experience versus mine. Experience on the individual scale. The bottom left quadrant is all about how we experience ourselves together as a group of people, a tribe, a culture, or so forth. This is what is typically called cultural studies in academia. On the top right, we have the it quadrant, which is science as we know it. That is, what we can observe about the world from the outside. The bottom right quadrant is the its quadrant. That is, how we can observe the outside the way, say, societies operate. This is what we might call sociology. Well, as we can see, cultural studies, the internal experiences and values of a culture versus sociology, the observable habits and practices of a group of people can be very different. An example of this idea would be someone watching Native Americans doing a rain dance. A sociologist would probably theorize that this particular dance is symbolic of the social cohesion of the tribe. It's also an expression of their cultural identity apart from other tribes. Okay, we can understand that. But to get to the actual internal experience of what they are doing when they dance for rain, we would actually have to talk to them. We can watch from the outside all day long, but in order to truly appreciate their culture, that is, understand their values and experiences, we would have to ask them. And their answer might be as simple as, we dance to ask the heavens for rain. Very different perspectives, and yet, one is not reducible to the other. They both carry their respective weight and unique truths. This is the trap that Don Juan would not let Castaneda fall into. Any outside or so-called objective observation of him would not trump the experience he had of flying. He had an experience and it was to be taken as truth. Okay, so here's where the army, bless their hearts, really (laughs) amuse me with all this stuff. As typical of the government, they try to approach this very esoteric experience from a scientific perspective. They come up with all kinds of explanations of how this can work by looking at the outside observables, namely the top right quadrant, which is what they seem to be hyper-focused on here. What exactly is happening in the brain? Not the mind necessarily, but the brain. Well, if we can sync the two hemispheres of the brain together, then we can create this experience, that of consciousness leaving the physical body at will and traveling to wherever. And they have a whole series of protocols to try to do this. Jess, you and I listened to one of the protocols, which was sort of a guided meditation on YouTube with a narrator and a set of instructions on how to begin training your brain to sync like this. Yeah, so that, that's what I was referring to when I called them the gateway tapes. Right. Yeah. And I mean, okay, whatever. It was relaxing. I will say that. And the sounds were interesting. Historically, learning to astral project has never been done this way. That is, through the top right quadrant in order to provoke an experience in the top left quadrant. This, to me, is what Wilbur might call the top right quadrant 
colonizing the top left. The scientific is attempting to take over what would normally be the domain of the internal experience of the mind, and subtle teachings and contemplative steps used in a spiritual practice over time. But the army can't wait that long. To hell with that! Let's just look at the brain and see what it's doing. You know, in a yogi or whoever says that they can do this and try to manipulate someone else's brainwaves to look the same. But that's part of the riddle of consciousness. We can hook you up to an fMRI machine, Dr. Makono, and then watch all the pretty colors light up as you begin visualizing different things in your head, correct? Yeah, that's kind of how that works, sure. Sure. And yet, I would still never know a single thought you ever had inside your mind. That's your internal experience. To get to that information, I would actually have to ask you, hey, Dr. McConer, what were you thinking about just now? Yeah, and that's a really great point that, you know, we can look at all of these different scans and measurements, but they don't really tell us what is going on inside the person. Right. So the army never really got this to work, and it seems obvious to me why they didn't. You know, Jess, you and I recently watched the movie Grace and Grit, which is a movie based on one of Ken Wilber's books about his marriage and the ultimate passing of his wife, Treya. Beautiful story and a great movie. Anyone who is interested in Ken Wilber and his work as a philosopher, the movie is a great place to start as it gives a good intro into his work through his experience of losing his wife to cancer. Anyway, in one part of the movie, his wife asks him for some basic points about his work. Back then, he considered himself a transpersonalist. Now he's something called integral. The difference I won't get into much here. But one of the basic assumptions that transpersonalists usually start with is spirit exists. Another one could be consciousness is not a material construct. That is, consciousness does not derive from matter. So how do the transpersonalists make claims like this? Well, that's actually pretty simple. The collective experience of literally millions and millions and millions of people throughout history. Sorry, but just because a scientist can't objectively verify the experience I had when I left my body makes it no less valid or profound to me. It just doesn't. One quadrant cannot invalidate another. It can try to colonize another, but that's all that it is. This is what the army tried to do here. They tried to colonize a very delicate and subtle spiritual technology with some very clumsy scientific methods, in my opinion. Then they sat around and wondered why it didn't work. Well, spirit exists. This is based on the evidence of billions of people who have experienced and qualified it by telling their story. Just because I can't physically see their experience makes it no less valid. I can't see their consciousness either, but I know that it's there. So I do think the idea of remote viewing is possible, of course. I know it is astral projection. If consciousness is not a physical construct, that is, it does not arise from matter, then it stands to reason that consciousness can indeed leave the body. This has been experientially verified by millions of people through numerous spiritual practices. I will say that there were times when the army did at least try to approach and acknowledge that interior world. This was seen in the times when they used terms like, quote, energy. But even this term relates to something in the physical world, and I don't think that consciousness can be reduced to the term energy either. And that's what this feels like to me. It feels like an attempt by some very right-quadrant thinkers to reduce astral projection to a series of right-quadrant protocols for the purpose of spying on others. It completely lacks the elegance and the respect and the humility and the sense of nuance one would have to approach spirit in order to finesse this kind of experience. 
and it would probably take a lot of time as well. So what about this energy concept? I wanted to address the idea that we are living in a simulation or a hologram, as this idea has been in the news a lot lately, with some towering theorists weighing into the idea, and was mentioned as part of the theoretical background for Project Stargate in the papers that we read. Did you remember that piece? Yeah, I did, and I was like, oh, it, it reminds me of the Matrix, right? Sure. Like this idea that our reality doesn't really exist. Right, and, th- and it's actually a movie right now, a documentary that you and I want to watch, we just haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah. Right, and A Glitch in the Matrix is what it's called. It's a documentary on Netflix. And we will get to that, I'm sure. But back in the early 2000s, there was a book called The Elegant Universe by a physicist named Brian Greene. At the time, he was professor at Cornell and later Columbia, I believe. Obviously a very intelligent person. What was new and groundbreaking about the theory behind the book was the idea of superstring theory, which, and I know I'm going to butcher this, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to try to make it as simple as possible, is the theory that matter is essentially made up of tiny bands of energy. When we break matter down to subatomic particles, we find that matter is not solid at all, and that on that level, matter doesn't really exist. Okay, so what's the point here? Well, this was touted as a, quote, theory of everything at the time. Sure, superstring theory, then, I assume, will also explain why I fell in love with you, right, Dr. McCona? Say what? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't understand. I mean, it's a theory of everything, right? Uh, I get it. It doesn't explain everything. Of course not. This so-called theory of everything does very little to explain my internal experience of being a conscious human. And again, here we have a a right-hand quadrant attempting to colonize a left-hand quadrant. And even though we use words like energy instead of matter, we are still reducing our collective experience as human beings. Sorry, but I'm more than just bands of energy. This energy theory, which is, as far as I can tell, the basis for the hologram theory, that is something like if matter is different layers of energy, we can compare it, all of it, to a hologram in a very real sense. This seems to fascinate a lot of people. So let's say that the universe is a hologram, or to take it one step further, some kind of simulation, which I have also seen theorized. Okay, great. I'll be sure to keep that in mind when I'm counseling one of the inmates on my caseload after he's just lost his mother while he's still stuck in prison. You see where I'm going with this? For all of our theoretical nets that we throw out into the universe, we have to come back to just ourselves. But the universe is a hologram. Isn't that interesting? Well, sure it is. Now, if you'll excuse me, I gotta go back to work. So that's my take on replacing words like matter with words like energy as they do in the army documents, as if doing so is going to yield some kind of profound spiritual wisdom. Newsflash! We are just as reduced to being called energy as we are being called matter. So try again. Anyway, hopefully I was able to make some sense of this. We go down some deep rabbit holes here, but when I sense the science quadrant attempting to muscle in on my profound experiences as a living, breathing human, I I get a bit defensive. And I think this is exactly what the army attempted to do here, which is why they really couldn't get it to work. You cannot reduce the experience of consciousness leaving the body to something as simple as brainwave patterns. So again, try again. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we've been talking about all of this stuff in relation to Project Stargate and this like hologram. And really, at the end of the day, you know, I love the science piece because I think like how cool would it be for us to have that additional piece of information? Right. But the reality is that it doesn't really matter. Like if we're living in a hologram 
fine. I don't know any different. So what difference does it actually make whether this is a hologram or quote unquote reality? It's all reality to me because it's all that I can perceive. Well, so and exactly. And does that invalidate somehow the work that you do, the work that you will continue to do in order to help people, humanity, our relationships with each other that we're in the hologram or that we're in a simulation? That's why I think the idea is ridiculous, personally. Yeah, I think it's like an interesting, maybe like intellectual exercise, but it really has no impact on me as a human being or my experience, you know? So it's just, yeah, it is kind of funny. And, you know, I appreciate how you kind of broke that down with the army. And maybe that's why this didn't work, right? Is because of the approach and the way that they tried to break it down into these very simplistic blocks. So, you know, it's this whole topic was just really fun to uh, research and to discuss. And so I just want to thank Taylor for the suggestion. And if you want to weigh in and have a say in what we cover in our season four finale, become a patron on Patreon. We have a page now. We'll be opening the voting later this season, but we're going to have, I think, four or five different topics to choose from for our season four finale. And our patrons will also get exclusive access to our live Q&A event at the end of the season, as well as access to a Patreon-exclusive follow-up episode on the Slenderman stabbing. So that's been back in the news recently. There's been kind of some new developments with that case. And so we're going to be talking about that in our uh, Patreon-exclusive episode. And David, we have merch! Yes, we do. Yeah, so check out the merchandise page on our website at psychologyafterdark.com. And just FYI, all shipping is free within the United States. So please consider sporting some Psychology After Dark merch. And if you're like Taylor and have a great idea for an episode, you can also send us an email from our website or you can message us on Facebook or Instagram. You can find links to some of what we discussed on this episode, as well as a link to the declassified CIA documents on the discussion page of our website. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with your friends and leave us a positive rating or review. We really appreciate that. We were recently asked, David, why we put so much time and effort into this project, Mm -hmm. Um, because obviously this is not our full-time job. Um, This is really a, a passion project for us. And, you know, the reason that we gave was all of you. You know, we've connected with so many of you through email and through social media and getting to know your stories, hearing about your journeys in psychology, and just getting to connect with all of you is incredibly rewarding. So thank you to everyone who listens and reaches out to us. And David will be back in just two short weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McConnell. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and Starlight by Soft Space. 
both provided by Gemendo.